all these theories are coming. Well, why was he killed? He was a revolutionary, and the Romans wanted this, and he was, oh, he was upsetting the traditions of the day, and he was. But the main reason they wanted him dead is because he claimed to be God. We're going to see that in the text today. And Jesus could rightly claim he is God because he is indeed God. He speaks truth. In this section of Scripture, 18 verses. 18. one eight. I've got to try to cover. Jesus faces persecution. He will display his sovereignty over all and confront the religious establishment. Two stories that we'll see. Three points I want to make from really these two stories, these two interactions that Jesus has. We're going to meet a lame man. We're going to meet the lamb, and we're going to see the legalist. The lame, the lamb, the legalist. Let's read in John 5, beginning in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. And these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming down, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know it was for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing the things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. First piece of this we want to see is the condition of the lame. We are told that after these things, Jesus has come out of Samaria. Jesus has um, healed uh, a, a young man there simply by his words. We read this royal official son at the end of chapter 4. After these things, after this time, Jesus comes to Jerusalem for a feast. We're not exactly certain what the feast is. We don't know if it's Pentecost or, or what's going on. We, we don't know for sure. We do know it's a feast. And we know that Jesus is gathered there. And where he is gathered, uh, he is at the sheep gate, a pool, uh, Bethesda, which means house at this 
scene. I, I want you to picture it there, this multitude. We're not told what the multitude is. There's a, a great number of people there who are described with four things. They're, they're sick, they're blind, they're lame, and they're, and they're withered. Now, I want you to picture that scene of these maimed people who had been there for an extended period of time. One, we believe, 38 years who, who are broken in body, uh, broken in spirit. They're crushed in heart. Uh, I want you to picture them there, laid out, begging, maybe moaning and maybe groaning. I want you to picture that scene and Jesus entering into it. We're not told. What do they do? Where are they going to go? What hope do they have? For life. Doesn't seem like much. We're introduced in this group of people. There was, there was a man there in verse 5. Ill for 38 years. Lying there. I want you to picture 456 consecutive months of waiting. 13,680 days of hopefully getting to the water. If I can just get to this water... I will be made whole, he thinks. That's his sickness. But his situation is actually hopeless. I want you to see his hopelessness. Uh, if you noticed in my reading, I skipped 3b and verse 4. Now, if you've got a study Bible or depending on what your translation is, it's going to do different things with the text. Uh, most of it's going to be in brackets and you'll have a little... Note out to the side, uh, mine says this word, these words, early manuscripts do not contain the remainder of verse 3 nor verse 4. Well, what does that mean? So I want you to think about the translators. When the translators get letters or copies of the letters, we don't have the original autographs. They don't exist. Or if they do, we don't have them. But from the ones that they used, this, these words were included in those early translations. 3B and verse 4 were in those. But here's what happens. All those smart guys and ladies that go out and dig in the, dig in the dirt, archaeologists, they find earlier manuscripts that predate the ones that use for translation. And those earlier manuscripts don't include 3B and 4. So what do we do? Do we jettison up? Just throw away our Bibles, right? We can't trust the Bible now. Well, no, we have to try to understand what we think may have happened how was the Bible copied? They just went down, hey, man, I've, I've lost my translation. Tony, can you run down to Kinko's, you know, and just can you whip one off for me real quick? No, that's not how they did it. Gutenberg's not even thought of. What do they have to do? I want you to take time this afternoon in your free time. I want you by hand to copy. Uh, let's just do Psalm 119. <laughs> Make it easy on you. Copy Psalm 119 without any errors. Imagine doing that for the whole Bible. Well, what we believe happened is someone who was doing the copying adds a note to the copy. And the note we believe he adds is 3B and 4. And he makes this little comment that the superstition of the day was that if a person can make it to the water that this angel of the Lord is stirring up, they will be healed. Here's what I need you to know. It's a superstition. Tertullian talks about this, that this was a superstition that people thought. Now, we don't know for sure how the water bubbled up. 
We don't know for sure how the superstition started, but there's no evidence throughout Scripture that an actual angel of the Lord actually came and stirred up waters that people actually got healed. But that's the superstition of the day. So this man's hope is in something that's not even real. So I want you to think about this. His, his hope is really not hope at all. Even if he makes it to the water, if it is superstition, and I believe it is, what's going to happen to him? He's going to go down a lame and he's going to, he's going to come up a lame. All the hopes that he thinks are in the water won't deliver him from his ailment. By the way, third time we've seen Jesus superseding and talking about water in John, haven't we? First one we see is the water to water to wine. We saw the woman at the well. I am here to give you something far greater than this temporal water that provides some level of nourishment. I will give you the what? Living water. Jesus here again is going to show that he is far greater and will exceed the expectation of the one who thinks he's going to be healed by this water. So we see that he is hopeless. He will not be saved by this water. Some say that this points to the futility of the law. Barclay writes in his commentator, in the porches the people lay ill. The law could show a man his sin, but could never mend it. The law could under, excuse me, uncover a man's weakness, but never cure it. The law, like the porches, porches, sheltered the sick soul, but could never heal it. If we are saying that the and some have went really, 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 really far. And you, you would be amazed at some of the things that people have done with this text in terms of allegorical. The five porticos are the five books of Moses. And the 30, 38 years of the time that people spent in the desert. I was like, dude, just, no. He's just, I don't think it means that. Uh, but we can make it say pretty much what it wants to say. But there is a picture of the emptiness of the law here. Uh, is that the exact reference or point that John's trying to make? I'm not sure. But we know that the law will not completely satisfy. It cannot truly heal. So he's sick, he's hopeless, finally he's in distress. Well, he describes his distress when Jesus asked him the question in verse 6. Hey, I could be made whole, he says, right? But I have no man to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, but while I am coming down, another steps before me. So if, if I just got when it's bubbling, if I really got there, that's my distress. If I could just get to that place, I'll, I'll be okay. But, but, but I can't get there. Uh, I, I'm in complete distress. So this guy, I want you to picture him. He's in the midst of a multitude, pretty large multitude of broken people. He's there. He can't be, he can't be cured of his sickness. He's hopeless and he's in distress. What does that sound like, brothers and sisters? I would suggest to you it sounds like mankind without the Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like man in their totally deprived state, their corruption that is within them. Spurgeon says that this word, this way regarding our corruption, which is equated here to being sick, blind, lame, and withered, as salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. Every part of our being has been impacted by sin. Total depravity does not mean that we're as bad as we could be, because Lord knows we're not. But we're corrupted through and through. One commentator says, thoroughly, comprehensively, and totally. There is nothing good about us in and of ourselves without the impact of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible describes the impact of total depravity or sin this way. Because oftentimes, because here's what we're doing. Uh, here's what I, at least I used to do as a believer. I didn't see myself as sick, blind, lame, and withered. I just said, you know, I'm kind of messed up. 
And I got some issues. I got some stuff with me. But I ain't sick, blind, lame, and withered. Well, let's see what the Bible says as it describes us in a physical sense. And you tell me what the Bible says about this. All of our body is corrupted by sin, Isaiah 1, 6. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. In the hood, they would say, you tore up from the floor up. <laughs> Top to bottom, you jacked up. Our hands are described as this way in Isaiah 1, 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Our feet, Proverbs 1, 16, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed Blood. Boy, I used to run to evil. Can I get a witness? Did you, you did too. Here's what I mean. The party's happening. Oh, man, you remember getting dressed. Ladies. Guys, you hit your axe. Cologne, right? And you're, oh, I can't wait to get to the party. I'm running to do what's evil. And I'm happy, smiling, excited about it. That's who we were in our depraved nature. Well, how about our mouths, our speech? James says this way, and the tongue is a fire of the very world of iniquity. Whoa. Tongues affected, feet affected. What else? Our eyes, haughty eyes and a proud heart. He's describing the look that we have towards others. We're proud looks. We look down upon others. How about our ears? Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. We couldn't hear. Couldn't hear the things of God. Didn't want to hear the things of God. Well, how about our minds? Ephesians describes this this way, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Wow, there's still more. Our hearts, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Last one, how about our affections? We've read this verse before in John three nineteen. For this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. Now, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there's enough evidence to really describe how human beings are without God. I, I'm not sure I gave you enough. I just gave you a tip of the iceberg. That's how the de Bible describes men who are without God. That's these people in a physical sense describing what we once were in a spiritual sense. Without hope. No chance at life. Think of about all the things that you were chasing that you thought were going to bring you joy. I read the story of a man in Michigan. He, he, did, he hit the lottery for $2 million. Now, most of us would think, man, if I got a $2 million check, man, I'd be good for the, at least the rest of my life and maybe into my children's life, I pray. He lost it all. Didn't know how to handle money. But we would think, man, if I can just get, man, if somebody dropped $2 million on my porch today, I would be responsible. <laughs> test me. I dare you. Double dog dare you to test me. I'd do it for you, but that chance check would bounce all the way to California and, and back. We would think that that would be the answer for our life. All the things that we think the world says this, if you can just get this, if you can just get to this water, you'll be happy. You won't. It's empty. But the story's not done from the, for the man, is it? The consideration of the lamb. Jesus steps on the scene. Don't pay, don't forget this. Man was there 38 years in verse 6 when Jesus saw him lying there. 
Wait a second, David. Verse 3 says there's a multitude of people. Katie, right? Doesn't it say a multitude of people? There's a big group of people. Why doesn't Jesus see them? Bible says Jesus sees him. Why does Jesus see him and not them? Why doesn't Jesus interact with the entire crowd? Why doesn't Jesus talk to the entire crowd? Scripture says that Jesus knew that he had been there for a long time in that condition because of his sovereign grace and his grace alone. Jesus, in his sovereign wisdom and power and understanding, chooses to set his affection on one man out of the crowd. Why? It's sovereign grace. Christ, in his wisdom and his understanding, what do we see that is noble in the man? Let me ask you this. Is is it safe to assume what do these people believe are going to happen at the pool? They can be healed. Do, Do you think all of them believe that? Yeah. This man was part of that, right? Did he have any reason to have any faith in Jesus? No. What what was his faith in? The pool. If I can get to the pool. Jesus steps to him. Well, why him? Why does Jesus come to, to him? Why does Jesus consider him? It is the sovereign will of God. It's a doctrine we don't like to talk about. God elected him. God called him. Lorraine Botner writes these words, the cause of any person believing is the will of God and the outward sign of the gospel sound, excuse me, the gospel strikes the ear, but in vain until God is pleased to touch the heart within. Horatio Bonner says these words, there can be no grace when there is no sovereignty. Deny God's right to choose whom he will and you deny his right to save whom he will. Deny his right to save whom he will and deny that salvation is of grace. If salvation is made to hinge upon any merit or fitness in man, seen or foreseen, grace is at an end. Why does Jesus save him? Why does Jesus come to him? That's not the question. Why did Jesus save you is the question. What was good in you? Were you exempt from who I described in Isaiah? Were your hands clean? Was your mind pure? Was there anything lovely in you that he called you? I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, there was nothing lovely in you. There was nothing lovely in the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 7 talks about that. I chose to set my affection on you simply because I chose to. He chose to love you simply and give display his grace to you simply because he chose to. Now, what that could put us in a little state of consternation. It ought not. It ought to put us in a state of praise. Lord, thank you. I was lame, withered, sick, and blind. And for some reason, you opened my eyes that I might see. I don't know why, but I'm thankful for it. Jesus comes to this man and dialogues with him. He sees him lying there. Do you know Jesus sees you in your condition today? He sees you in your condition. He knows what's going on in your life. He knew that he had been there for a long time. Jesus says, what you're hoping for in the water, I can give you. Everything that you think can happen in the water, I can give you, and that much more. See, because the water, let's say even if it could heal him physically, what does that mean? He is a sound, physically person who has been given strength who is on his way to hell. 
apart from a spiritual awakening, apart from being Nicodemus, what? Born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I am far greater than this water. I am, I am the living water. I am the one who replaced the wine at the, or gives wine at the wedding. I am far greater than all these things. I'm going to completely, completely replace. I'm not an add-on to it. I am far greater than it. We see Jesus, his sovereign grace, his sovereign substitute. Finally, or number three, we see his sovereign power. He says to the man in verse eight, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Notice the first word in verse nine, immediately the man became well. This is not an incremental healing. Now, I used to see, and I used to be able to do it. I will not embarrass myself and try to do it now. Like I could sit on my knees and you get the enough, you get enough power in your arms and you can jump up. Well, I'm going to do it real fast. I just did it. See, it was so fast. I'm sorry. When about the rewind, when you go back and look at the video, you'll be able to see me. I just was on my knees and got, you, you ever seen anybody do that? Do you think that's how he got up? Now, if I had to get down and get up, that would be a long process. But he was healed immediately. It was immediate. He rises up. He is changed immediately by the power of Christ, simply by the word. Get up. Take up your pallet. Walk. Do you think there was a little pep in his step? Now, I want you to think. I, I had an ACL surgery in high school, and I had, like, this cast on for eight weeks. And I remember getting the cast off, and the first thing I remember is, like, where's my thigh? And I had this little bitty left thigh, no quads, no nothing, and a big, strong right leg. I was like, what happened to my thigh? What if I would have been in that for 38 years? What would have happened to the muscles in my legs? What do you think was going on in the muscles in this guy's leg? So think about Jesus doesn't just heal. Muscle tone, all of its back just like that. This dude is radically changed. Don't miss that. Do you think, now think about this, and I've seen this before, I have never experienced it, but people who haven't walked for a long time, what do they have to learn how to do again? They have to learn how to walk again. There's, he doesn't say, hey, get yourself down to the rehab facility. He heals him immediately, and he is strengthening. He has the ability to walk. He hasn't walked for 38 years. Do you think that's a miracle? Do you think that's a big deal? It is a huge deal. Sovereign power of God changed him brothers and sisters prayerfully you know where i'm going remember the points that i just gave you about what sin had done to our corrupted bodies think about what jesus and his power has done for us we were told that all of our bodies head to toe was was found as sinful but when jesus changed us Titus 3 tells us when the kindness of our Savior, God our Savior, appeared and is, uh, he saved us, not on the basis of which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He changed our entire bodies head to toe. He changed our hands, which were once covered in blood. Now in 1 Timothy, Paul says, therefore I want every man in every place to lift up hands in prayer prayer, giving praise to God with our hands. We no longer use these to share uh, evil or wicked things. We lift them up in praise. What about our feet? We used to run to evil. Now, Romans tells us how beautiful are the feet of those who what? Bring the good news of peace. We used to run to sin. Now we run to tell others about the good news of who Jesus is. Our feet are being changed. What about our tongues? 
was once a fire, the very world of iniquity. Now Colossians tells us, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with what? Psalms and hymns and singing with thankfulness with hearts to God. Didn't we just talk about it? Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. We don't sing to the world anymore. We don't sing about things that are for us. We sing and lift up praises to God. Our eyes were once haughty, but now our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same and sat down at the right hand of the Father of God. We don't look at the world or look down at others. We look to Jesus. We've got new eyes, got new hands, got new ears. Our hearts are not dull anymore. Luke 8 says that these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold fast and bear fruit. We heard the word of God and it stirs us and it changes us and it makes us like God. What about our minds? We're told in Romans 12 too that our minds are being transformed, the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. But what about our hearts? Oh, our hearts have been changed, brothers and sisters. There's no longer deceitful and desperately sick. Our hearts are prayerfully here. Matthew 22, 37 through 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What about our affections? I love this. Psalm 40, verse 8, we no longer love darkness I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Everything about us is changed, brothers and sisters. All the wicked things we used to think and do with the members of our body, prayerfully, we're now doing to the glory of God. Why? Because he has told us, pick up your pallet and walk. What a wonderful Wonderful Savior we serve, who has radically, radically changed us. we got to cover this little section, though. Sovereign wisdom. Back in verse 6, what's up with Jesus' question? Nobody can put me in the pool. Somebody steps over me. Okay. But Jesus asked, do you wish to get well? Now, me, having a gift of a sharp tongue, which sometimes is used sinfully, unfortunately. Duh. <laughs> I'm here. Do I wish to get, what do you mean, do I wish to get? <laughs> yes, Jesus. Why does Jesus ask this question? Why does Jesus ask this question, do you wish to get well? Why is, what is he trying to get to? Um, Kit Hughes has a great little, I don't, I don't think he believes it, but he shares a commentary that I didn't have, so I have to refer to his commentary, which refers to another commentary. He, he says that the reason why he thinks Jesus may have asked it, at least this commentator, is that in this culture, I want you to think about this man has been possibly had a pretty cush kind of situation for 38 years. And here's what I mean by that. Maybe he's been a beggar and he's done very well. Uh, he has watched people go to and fro about their business for 38 years. Now, if I'm made well, i got to get a job. If I'm made well, nobody is going to give to me anymore. That's his speculation. That commentators. I'm not sure I buy into it, but it's plausible. 
I think maybe the reason why Jesus asked his question, asked this question, is to probe what does this, this, this inner sense to the man, like what do you really want? And I think the second interaction that Jesus gives to him is going to give us some more insight. And I, and I think about it this way. You ever met people who come around and hang around Christians and they like the idea of Christianity and like the idea of faith simply because it's kind of cool. You know, it's nice. I've done this today. I can go to my friends and they'll see I went to church today. I can interact with people. They're nice to me. I'm nice to them. But there's, I, I really don't want to change my life. Like, you know, I really don't have the expectation that I'm going to come here and they're going to expect change for me. I don't mind even being challenged. You know, the Bible doesn't say anything that it's a virtue to be challenged. The good thing is to be changed. We're all challenged by different things, right? I see the commercials on TV, uh, you know, Roberta Flack playing and the dogs are out in the cold. uh, And I'm challenged. Maybe I should go give some money to this dog as they're taping it being in the cold. (laughs) Now, I ain't the smartest guy, but if I'm taping the dog in the cold... Put down the camera and get the dog out of the cold. But hey, I'm just saying I'm challenged to give. I haven't been changed to give, though. Bible doesn't call us to be challenged. It calls us to be changed. Why do you come here? Why do you go to any church? Do you really want to be whole? Do you really want your life to be reflective of what God wants it to be? Do you really want it? We just want a Band-Aid. I want to feel good about myself. I can check off the box and say, this is what I did. Do you really want change? Do you really want to be the husband, wife, grandmother, grandparent, etc., that God wants you to be? Only you know the answer to that question. Jesus has additional interaction with him down in verse 14. So the man's going to be, and we'll talk about this in a few moments, he's going to be indicted by the Jews, the religious Jews, for carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. Hey, who told you to do this? Don't know. He goes to the temple. Jesus finds him in the temple in verse 14 and asks him or makes this statement. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. What's that mean? Well, number one, we go back. John chapter one, Jesus came full of grace and truth. We will see that throughout this letter and his interaction with people. Where do we see the grace of Christ? In the healing now, what's the truth? Well, we just read it. Don't sin anymore. We've heard that before, right? Does that ring a bell to anyone? Remember the woman caught in adultery? Woman, where are your accusers? I don't accuse you either. Grace, go and sin no more. Truth. He gives this man truth. Now, what's it mean, though? Does this say that his Physical ailment could return if he continues to sin? Could he become lame again if he sins? Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so nothing worse happens to you. Some would say, well, yeah, he could go back to his original state. Well, first of all, that would be, that's not what the text says. The text says something worse. Going back to his original state would not be worse. Here's what we got to think this through. What's the worst thing that could happen to anyone if they don't repent? Hell's fire. Separation from God in the sense of heaven. So don't sin anymore. Repent so that nothing worse, the worst thing that could happen would be, again, hell's fire. He is admonishing the man. You've got to seek something farther, much deeper than 
healing it. Can he go to the water at the pool of Bethesda as a whole man to think that that's going to help him sin less? No. He has to trust in the one who paid his sin debt. Does he come to that conclusion? I, I don't know. I pray that you have come to that conclusion, though. You can't go and sin no more in and of yourself. It's not going to happen. All right, so last piece of this. I told you there were really three movements. So we've seen this, this lame man who has been made whole by the lamb. Last piece of this last couple of verses. The condemnation of the legalist. So I've told you about and we read the interaction that the man, the healed man has with the Jews. Why are you, it's, it's not permissible in verse 10 for you to carry your pallet. Uh, verse 15, let's pick up the story there. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus. So this man has had, had interaction with Jesus in the temple. He goes and tells the religious leaders that it's Jesus. By the way, I really want to be specific. It's very important for us. New Testament um, ever because of stories like this, because of misunderstanding. You notice how the text reads the Jews. Jesus has interaction with the Jews. So some would take that to say, well, there's an issue that Christians have with the Jews. Now, when we hear Jews in the Bible or the Jews in this context, who's Jesus talking about? The religious leaders of the day. Does Jesus have a problem with all Jewish people? Obviously not. His disciples are Jewish. Many of his first followers are, are Jewish. But we've got to be careful when we say it and they read this. Oh, man, what's your issue with the Jews? No. This is talking about the religious Jews of the day. He tells the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well for this reason. Two reasons we're going to give. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Pharisees had in the Talmud 24 chapters dedicated to observing the Sabbath. 24 chapters. I'm just going to give you some of this to come from John MacArthur. It was wrong, or you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your home. So here's what they did if they had to travel on the Sabbath. Wherever you And when you get another 3,000 feet, set another meal there because every time I go to 3,000 feet, oh, there, here's my meal. Now I can go another 3,000 feet. Oh, here's my meal. I can go another 3,000 feet. That's how they had got around traveling on the, on the Sabbath day. Here, there's more. There was regulations about carrying items. Something lifted in a public place could only be set down in a private place. An object tossed in the air could be caught with the same hand, but if it was caught with the other hand, it's a Sabbath violation. If a person reached out to pick up food when the Sabbath began, it had to be dropped because to bring the arm back while holding food would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. It was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dried fig. A tailor could not carry his needle, a scribe his pen, or a student his book. You could only have enough ink to write two letters. You couldn't send a letter. Clothes could not be examined or shaken out for being being put on because an insect might be killed in the process, which would be killed, considered work. No fire could be lit or put out. Cold water could, could be poured into warm water, but not warm into cold. An egg could not be cooked. Nothing could be sold, sold or bought. Bathing was forbidden, lest water be spilled on the floor and you wipe it up. 
Moving a chair was not allowed since it might make a rut in the dirt floor, and that's too much like plowing. One more. Women were forbidden for looking into a mirror since if they saw white hair, they might be tempted to pull it out. <laughs> that's what the Sabbath had. Become. There's 24 chapters dedicated to this kind of stuff. This is the burden you see in Matthew 24 when Jesus indicts the Pharisees with the eight war oracles of, of Genesis, or excuse me, of Matthew 24. That's what he was talking about. You put all these heavy burdens. Could you imagine if that's the weight that you had to do if we were to consider the Lord's day the Sabbath? That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, right? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. It's this idea of these burdens on people. This man who has been healed can't carry his pallet. Notice what they don't ask the man. Did you pay attention to what they don't ask him? What would we ask him? How did you get healed? This is wonderful. Man, you're breaking the Sabbath law. It's the essence of legalists. We're going to spend a lot of time on the legalists because we'll talk to them and we'll meet them throughout this, this letter. Last piece of this, verse 18. For this reason, second reason, therefore the Jews were seeking not, not any longer just to persecute him, but they were going to kill him. Not what it says. They were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also calling his own father, calling God, excuse me, his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. What day is Jesus working on? The Sabbath. Jesus is working. He is doing acts of mercy. If we read PCA material, which I think they do a good job, that they would say, and I've got some Sabbath principles that I, that I have personally, and I don't put that on anybody else. Um, but there's acts of mercy are always acceptable on the Sabbath. Always. All, hey, you know, I can't help you fix the tire. I know you're out here on 78. It's the Sabbath. Doesn't make any sense. Jesus says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. So they condemn him for Sabbath breaking and they condemn him for his claim at deity. Jesus does not mince words. He says, my father, my father. He doesn't say the father. He equates himself to God and they are seeking, they will seek to destroy him because of it. So what do we learn from this? What do we take away? Other than David Sweat's first and second service. Number one, Jesus does not mince words. Jesus is the son of God. He proclaims himself as the son of God. The religious leaders know that Jesus is saying that he is the son of God, thus God. The religious leaders will seek to destroy him, kill him because of his claim at deity. What is our response to this, to this knowledge? All of those who were in Christ will be persecuted for the same proclamation. As we proclaim, rightfully so, Jesus is exactly who he says he is, we will be persecuted. That is not a popular message. They will seek to destroy that message. But I pray that we will say, my father is working until now, not in the sense that we're deity, but God the Father is working until now and I'm working. So here's my question for you, believer. How are you working Jesus says, my work is to do the will of the Father. We'll see that later. How are you working? What has God called you to do? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has called you to enter into his work. If you're a member of Bethel Church, how are you helping us accomplish the last part of our mission statement? 
going with Jesus and his ministry of reconciliation to the world. What are you doing to participate in that? Jesus is working. We should be working. How are you working? What are you doing? Not to earn your salvation. It's not, not it at all. As a result of being saved, of being rescued, of picking up your pallet, of being made alive. Now what are you going to do? What does he want you to do? Serve him. Sacrifice. Surrender your will to his and go where he wants you to go. Do what he wants you to do. And as you're doing, as you're going, you're proclaiming. You're proclaiming what? Jesus Christ is the son of God, the savior of the world. He is the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. I'm going to tell that to the day I die. Ought to be the clarion call of the believer. That's our job. That's our mission. Let's get busy. Let's pray.